The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Looking at why so many denominations, the search for truth. 34,000 different Christian denominations. How do you make sense of all of that? What's going on here? How come there are so many different denominations? Does actually God have a church today? Is that really the case? Good question. What about the fact that many people say, well, doesn't it really, does it really matter? Don't all roads lead to the same place? This is another important question on this as well, of course. And then, of course, as we said, don't all roads lead that way. Let's begin this program this afternoon by looking at what the Bible says about the church of God in the scriptures. Let's notice a number of key principles. Number one is this. The Bible says there was one organized church in the New Testament times. Notice what the Bible tells us very clearly. Paul is speaking to his friends in Ephesus. There's one body, which the Bible uses that term for the church, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, there was one belief system as well in the New Testament church. There weren't a multitude of different ideas on the same subject. There was one belief system in the New Testament. Notice what the Bible puts it this way. We've already read it. One body or church, one Lord, one hope, I should say, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, the Bible uses the idea of faith, meaning faith in Jesus, but it also used for the idea of teachings as well, the beliefs that you have. You notice what Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. To God's people. We just read a while ago that there will be doctrines of demons coming in as well. There was one belief system or set of beliefs in the ancient church in the New Testament times. God's plan is for one united church. That has always been his plan. Notice the way the Bible puts it. Jesus is praying and he says in his prayer, Father, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. It was never God's intention to have 34,000 different denominations. Let me tell you, that was never his plan. He was always wanted one, but that's where we are today. Paul put it this way, that there should be no schism in the body. He says, God doesn't want to have lots of splits in the body or the church, that there should be no schism. It's not God's idea to have all these 34,000 denominations at all. The Bible also predicts, predicted that in the New Testament times, that the Bible predicted that there would be a departure from those New Testament truths of the Bible. Notice the way Paul put it when he wrote to Timothy. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, we read this earlier, some shall depart from the faith. There it is again, from the belief systems, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, not going God's along his doctrines or teachings. They'll depart from the faith, his teachings, and they'll follow the teachings of devils, says Paul. So no question, the Bible talks about a departure from the faith that was once held in the New Testament times. Now we're going to look at some new some history from university history and uh, church history and so on. We're going to take a journey 
down through time, down through the history of Christianity. This is a very quick flyover of how we got to have so many denominations. Now, let's notice, and we've seen before, that Constantine was the first Christian Roman emperor. There in 313 AD at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he began to embrace the Christian faith. Now, we mentioned that pagan beliefs from that point entered the Christian church. They flooded into the Christian church. They had begun before this, but now they poured in to the Christian churches. Now, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, the church fell away, and that's the word, the Bible's word for that is apostasy, a falling away, a departure from the teachings of the Bible. The church quickly fell away from the truths of the Bible as time went on. For example, firstly, we notice one of the first teachings to suffer at this time was the Sabbath. Sabbath was replaced by Sunday worship especially from 321 AD when the Emperor Constantine made a law on this or proposed a law. 381 AD, we find that the worship of Mary starts to be introduced into the Christian church. Then a little later, 416 AD, infant baptism begins in the Christian church, the baptism of babies and so on. 783 AD, the worship of images and of saints become starts to come into the Christian church. We move on down to the 1100s and baptism by immersion ceased. We saw that in the program two or three weeks ago. So this ceases, infant baptism replaces it. In 1123 AD, celibacy of the priest is introduced into the Christian church. You can see a long time after the New Testament, these things are being added as time goes on. Then we find that in 1215 AD, confession to priests begins, becomes part of the church, so that now people confess to human priests and so on. And then we find that in 1229 AD, Bible reading is forbidden. Lay people, tragic when you start to think about it. And you can see why, because if people would read their Bible, they would see, hey, we're departing from the faith of the New Testament church. 1545 AD, church tradition is declared to be above the Bible. So the Bible is second to the church's teachings or traditions. Tragic when you think about it. This is what happened, and that's what the Bible says. There will be a falling away from the teachings of the Bible. In fact, very new, very few New Testament teachings or beliefs of the church were left intact in the church. One that was left intact, which is a marvellous teaching, is this one here. One we find in the Gospel of Matthew says these words. Jesus is speaking. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, says Jesus. Then he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the great name of God, Jehovah. Here, Jesus says the Father is Jehovah. I am Jehovah. The Holy Spirit is Jehovah, and we are all one. It's not names. It's in the name, singular, the one great God. And there are three parts, if you like, three personages in that one great God. And that's what I like about the Church of Rome. That teaching has remained intact among our Roman Catholic friends, and I'm glad for that. 
But the Bible says, as time went on, there would be departure, as we've seen. The Bishop of Rome, we notice, received political power from the Emperor Justinian. 538 AD, we've talked about that a lot. And then tragically, many things began to change even more. The Dark Ages began. The lights, as it were, were starting to go out in Europe. What a tragic time this was. You know, there were calls for reformation. You can see these things coming into the church. There were many faithful priests, many godly bishops, many godly people in the Church of Rome, nuns and so on, people who called the church back to reformation, said we must come back to the Bible, the Word of God. I thank God for godly priests down through the centuries, men and women who wanted to come back to the Bible and wanted the church to come back, calls for a reformation of the Dark Age Church. Thank God for such godly people. But the result of those calls for reformation meant that many of those people lost their lives. Many of them were killed by the same church that they were seeking to reform, tragically. Many people lost their lives. You know, the Bible itself was an outlawed book. It was banned A few Bibles, the ones that were available, were chained to the pulpits of churches and so on. And they were in Latin or in Greek so that the people couldn't understand them. The priest had to interpret them. What a tragedy. People knew that if we put this in the vernacular of the people, they would see things that the church sadly did not want to see. Many Bibles were burned. On one occasion, the Bishop of Durham bought up some 3,000 Bibles and he made a big bonfire of them. And John Wycliffe had translated the Bible, sorry, uh, William Tyndale had translated the Bible into the language of the English people and the church burned the Bible. What a tragedy, what a sad thing you see. Truth was being trodden down as Daniel predicted, no question. The Bible, sadly, came into great, great uh, disuse and No use at all. It was forbidden, as we said, to be translated. You see, in other words, the dragon persecuted the woman or God's church. He tried to destroy the church who gave birth to the male child, to Jesus Christ. Then the woman, the Bible says, after Jesus had gone back to heaven, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Thank God he preserved the truth of the church. He preserved the his 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 teachings and his his people of course not all were were saved but all were in the hand of God many godly people gave their lives just like Jesus did and Paul did a place prepared by God that they should feed her there he says 1260 days the period of the dark ages God was looking after his truth his church it was still alive though it was very badly off in some places One day, one year, so 1,260 years of persecution, terrible persecution by the church against godly people within the same church. This is what John portrayed. And so the light went out in Europe, in the old world. 
darkness, superstition. You can read about these things in university history. All the superstition. All where we go when the Bible is placed aside. My friend, this not only happened for the church, it can happen in your life and my life. When we relegate God and his word to second place, to third place, to fourth place, let me tell you, the light will go out in your life. The light will go out in my life. The light will go out in your home. The light will go out in our nation. The light will go out in the world just like it did then. The word of God is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Never forget the history of the church tells us that very clearly. And so the light went out. But somebody lit a match. Somebody struck a match. He was a faithful priest in the church of Rome. Martin Luther was his name. Martin Luther was a godly priest. This man was on his way. We talked about his story. We don't need to go into it again. But this man was afraid of God until one of his his uh, friends, a priest, Stalpitz, a godly man, got Martin Luther to read this book. And when Martin Luther read this book, he discovered two great teachings in the Bible that the church had lost for centuries. And these were they. As Martin Luther read this book, he discovered the truth of this text. All scripture is inspired by God. He realized this is the word of God. And by the way, that's why this book is being attacked today in our world. Sadly, being attacked on many fronts, not burnt, but ridiculed, but said it's not true. But, you know, you can't believe in miracles. You can't believe in the supernatural. How can you go against what so-called some scientists say that the world was millions and millions of years of old? It doesn't make sense. But that's what the word of God says. The word of God is inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable to us. Martin Luther rediscovered that truth. But as he read the Bible, he noticed words like this, no doubt. Man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how you and I can live life at its best today, by heeding the word of God. It's that lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But as he read these words, as a priest who didn't know God in his heart, he wanted to know God, he wanted the forgiveness of his sins, he wanted to know that if he died today, he would be ready to meet Almighty God as they just sang. He wanted that, but he couldn't find that. But as he read this book, he discovered the answer. And my friend today... If you are seeking God and you want to know his forgiveness, you want to know that you have eternity, I would suggest to you this is the place to start. Because as the more you pour over this book asking God for help, he will turn the light on for you too. He read these words as he studied the Bible, for by grace, not by our works, for by grace you have been saved through faith through our trusting like a little child. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You can't boast when you get to heaven and say, God, well, I was a good this and I was a good that and I did this. No, no, the Bible says it's by grace that you'll be there on that other shore one day. By grace we have been saved. And this man, when he read these words, he started to come alive. He realized that God loved even Martin Luther. And so the Lutheran church was born through this great priest of God, with these two great teachings that Martin Luther had brought back to the attention of the world. 
that have been lost for centuries. The Bible alone, this is the rule of faith and practice. And grace alone, not ourselves. And my friends, that's what I like about our Lutheran friends and the Lutheran church. They brought those things back to the attention of God. Thank God for the Lutherans for bringing that to the attention of the church of God. But more was yet to follow from the word of God. We know that the Bible tells us that there's more light yet to come out of his word. More light yet to come back. I like this text that you find in the book of Proverbs. The Bible says these words back in the book of Proverbs. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of the day. God did not shine all the light onto the dark age church. He brought light back gradually because, you know, when you go into a cave for a while and you come out into the light, it blinds you, right? So God brought truth back slowly, slowly by instruments of his calling to the back to the church that had lost these teachings down through the centuries. More light was yet to break out of this word, and so God raised another instrument. His name was John Kelvin. He too was a great uh, man in the church of Rome, a great theologian, brilliant mind, John Kelvin. John Kelvin was a godly man in the church of Rome, and as he started to look at the Bible during this time, he noticed this great teaching, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, not man. God is in control. Words like this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He did not say in the Bible, all things are good. He said, God brings good out of everything. All things work together for good. So maybe today you're going through some difficulty in your life. Maybe you're wondering where God is in your journey, in the life of your family or friends. Let me tell you, my friend, you get on your knees and you talk to God and you say, God, you are my father and you promised you would bring good out of even the bad in my life. Speak to God. That's what this great man of God discovered. He discovered this tremendous truth of the sovereignty of God. But he also discovered the security and the assurance of salvation. In words like this that we've read previously, he who has the Son has life. These things I have written, said John, that you may hope. No, no, no. That you may wish, not at all. That you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that confidence? The assurance and the security of salvation in Jesus if we have him, if we've asked him to come in to our life. This great teaching was rediscovered by this giant of a man in the church of Rome and this came back to the attention of the church. But sadly, you know, people would not usually follow much further than their leader. But thank God for this man. And so the Presbyterian churches and the Reformed churches came into being through John Kelvin uh, with their great twin teachings, the sovereignty of God and the security and the assurance of salvation in Christ. And that's what I like about our Calvinist friends, our Reformed friends, the Presbyterian churches. Thank God for those people who brought that back through their leader, John Calvin, to the attention of the world. But, you know, it was like people would go no further than Luther. They would sort of put a, a fence around Luther's teachings and would go no further than Luther had taught. 
or than John Kelvin had taught. So someone comes along and shares something from the word of God that they didn't teach. People sort of put a fence around. We'd go no further. So God had to raise up another instrument to bring that light back to the church, which had been in the dark for centuries. You see, more light was yet to come back to God's church because so much had been lost in the dark ages. So God raised up another instrument. We find that this man, John Smith, was an Anglican in, in Great Britain. He left England for Holland in 1607 because many people were being persecuted in England as well, by the Church of England as well. And so he left England for Holland, and while he was over there, he discovered the teaching of baptism. He discovered this, we are buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And John Smith realized the Bible taught baptism by immersion, even though he was an Anglican. He accepted that teaching. He was, of course, pushed out of the Anglican church because people didn't want to go that direction. And so we find that he baptized by immersion in 1608 and then the Baptist churches came into being in 1612. And so that's what I like about our Baptist friends. The Baptist church came into existence, teaching and bringing back to the attention of Christianity, believers baptism by immersion. Thank God for the Baptists. That's what I like about the Baptists. They brought that back to the Christian church. But more light was yet to come from God's work. God had to raise up another instrument because people would go no further than their founding father. So God raised up another instrument to bring more light back to his church. The Anglican church became very formal in England during the 1600s and 1700s. You sort of could buy your seat in church you pay the pastor to say what you want him to say and all this sort of thing. Very formal. And there was a man of God called John Wesley. He had some friends, George Whitfield and his own brother, Charles Wesley. These men wanted to know God from the inside out. They searched for God. John Wesley tells us that he went to England to convert the Red Indians. He had been an Oxford scholar. He went there to convert the Indians, but he was a failure, and so was his brother, and so was many people, because they didn't know Christ. These boys, by the way, these young men, they formed in Oxford a holiness club. They had a method for everything, a method for praying, a method for helping the poor, a method for fasting. They did many things because they thought if we do all these things, we'll be right with God. And so people made fun of them and called them Methodists. And the name stuck with these guys. When he came back from North America, he said, I went there to convert the Indians, but who will convert John Wesley? You see, he wanted to know God, but he couldn't find God. We find in his story that he was traveling around London, going to the great cathedral of St. Paul's one night right here, went inside to hear the great choir, but he didn't find God. He slipped down the street in London, to a little road called Aldersgate Street and slipped into the back of a meeting room where there were some people listening to the word of God. These were Moravian people from Czechoslovakia, what we call that area today. And as John Wesley listened to the word of God that night, 
The man was talking how we can be saved by Jesus alone. And John Wesley said, my heart felt strangely warm within me. And I knew, he said, that God had forgiven my sins, even mine. John Wesley got up out of that seat, a changed man from the inside out. He got on his horse and he rode 240,000 miles to tell people about Jesus. And there was a tremendous revival in England. In fact, historians tell us, had it not been for the preaching of George Whitfield and John Wesley, there would have been a revolution like the French had at around the same, a little later on. So this was the great teaching that John Wesley brought back to the church as a result of him finding God. As he read the Bible, he found the great truth that we should live like Christ. Why? Because he now lives in us. And it's his power that transforms the life. This was the great teaching. Verses like this from the writings of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who now lives in me. That's a tremendous Uh, A promise to us, isn't it? Christ lives in me, he discovered. And the life which I now live in the flesh, the Bible says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John Wesley rediscovered that truth and he brought it back to the attention of the Christian church. And so the Methodist church began thanks to the guidance of this man of God, John Wesley. And that's what I I, I like about the Methodists. They brought this great teaching, living like Christ, because his life is in us. Thank God for the Methodists. And that's what I like about what this church brought back to the attention of Christians. Do you notice what's happening here? As we travel on down through time, truth is being restored. One by one, these great teachings that had been lost through the dark ages were being restored as God raised up a new instrument to bring a teaching back to the attention of the Christian church. Thank God for what he was doing. The church had been in the dark and God was turning on the light little by little, bringing an instrument to bring a teaching back to the Christian church. You see, they went into that dark age tunnel in 538 AD. They went in one church called the Church of Rome. But 1260 years later, many churches exited the dark age tunnel, if we could put it that way. Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and so on. These what we call the mainline churches. These emerged. Sadly, as time went on, the reason we have 34,000 denominations is because people split off from these groups and people split off from the groups that split off, mostly not so much over doctrinal issues many times, but over personality issues. You see what happens sometimes, just like a club, people get their nose out of joint with someone, we break away and we break away and it continues and so on and so forth. So that's another reason we have so many different denominations as well as these great teachings that God was restoring. One denomination went in, many denominations exited. Each group had some Bible truth that it brought to the attention, but none had all of it. God had not yet pulled it all together, but it was emerging in different groups, thank God, for what he was doing, you see. And then, then in the period of Christian history, we come to the year 1798, a very significant, pivotal point in prophetic time, as we saw last evening. The end of the 1260 years, remember that? The time of the end began, we saw last evening. This marks the time in which the end will happen. 
Not the end of time, but the time of the end. Revelation 10, we saw last evening, remember? John saw a scroll book open. We saw last evening that scroll book that was now open, that had once been shut, was the book of Daniel. People from different denominations began to study the book of Daniel, especially, we noticed, the prophecy of the 2,300 days. That part that had been sealed by God, that part of Daniel's book, especially the 2,300. We talked about that last evening. People began to study this book. Till the time of the end, Daniel's book, we saw, had been sealed. Shut it up, Daniel. Till the time of the end. So 1798, what did we discover last evening? People began to study the 1260 days of Daniel's prophecies. And Daniel's book began to be unsealed. So that in Revelation we see that book is open in the hand of God. When 1798 happened and the 1260 years finished and people saw the Bishop of Rome was taken prisoner right on time prophetically. They now studied the book of Daniel chapter 8 verse 14. As we said last evening, Roman Catholic Jesuit priest Manuel de la Cunza studied Daniel 8.14, believed something was going to happen in 1843-1844. Different denominations around the world. Rabbi uh, Ben Ezra, that was the name of this Jesuit priest, Manuel de la Cunza. There was Joseph Bengal traveling around the Muslim world sharing the same prophecy. There were people in England and Europe and North America all saying the same thing. Something is going to happen in 1843, 1844. Many said Jesus would come, but many didn't know what would come. They wouldn't say. They just said the prophetic clock has struck the hour. Something is going to happen. The end of the 2,300-day prophecy. Fascinating to read, as we saw last evening. 1844. What happened? We noticed that last night, you remember. We saw last evening that 1844 came. William Miller, the Baptist farmer, he said Jesus would come. Jesus didn't come. There was a tremendous disappointment, we noticed last night, when Jesus didn't arrive like they thought he was supposed to arrive. Shattered. And then we notice that some of those people, an interdenominational group, people of different denominations who had gone through this thing together, some of these got together. What went wrong? How come Jesus didn't come? Remember last evening? They noticed the cleansing of the sanctuary was not the coming of Jesus to cleanse the world, but it was the time when the judgment began. We saw that last evening. God had begun his work of judgment which will only finish at the end of the thousand years. The judgment which shows that there is a just and a fair God in this universe. These people, these different people from different denominations began to study the Bible together. You can almost imagine, hey man, what do you, you, you believe that when you die you go to sleep? That's nonsense. How you can you get, you, how can you believe such a thing? Well, let me show you from the Bible. So as they studied the Word of God together, people realized that's the truth. That comes from God's Word. So they accepted that teaching from each other and the study of the Bible. They had brought these teachings. God was bringing them together as they studied his word and shared their principles that they had brought from their faiths, their denominations and so on. Baptism by immersion. People realize that's the truth. Hey, the Baptists believe that. 
Someone, as we said, shared the teaching of death is asleep. That's the truth. Let's accept that. Here's another one who says, hey, listen, what about the Seventh-day Sabbath? And so the Seventh-day Adventist church was born in the 1850s of different denominations coming together and sharing truth and studying truth from the Bible, truths that God had been resurrecting. And so this is how this church came into being as well. 34,000 denomination, Christian denominations. How are you going to sort that out? How are you going to understand what's going on here? As we mentioned, back to those questions, does God actually have a church today? Is that really? We, we must understand something. God had promised there will be one flock and one shepherd. God's aim has always been to have one. It has never been his purpose to have 34,000 denominations. One body, said Paul, or one church, one hope of your calling, one faith, one baptism. God's end-time church in the Bible is called the remnant. I want you to notice how the Bible puts that. Let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, because this sets the stage for the great conflict that is going to be unfolded in Revelation, which we've now studied together. The dragon, Satan, he's angry with the woman, God's people, and he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now, who is the remnant of her seed? Who is the seed of the woman? What's this seed he's talking about? Well, you will recall that the seed of the woman in chapter 12 is the Christ child. This woman is pregnant. And who's the baby that she's carrying or the seed that she's carrying? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Her seed is Jesus. So in other words, John is telling us this is the remnant of Jesus. These are his followers, his faithful followers. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't turn up in person. How does Jesus in the world today, how is Jesus here? He is here through his body, the church. That's what the New Testament teaches us. The church is the body of Christ. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm not really persecuting you in person, Jesus. I'm persecuting your church. You see, you touch the church, you touch Christ. That's how precious the church is to Jesus. So what's he saying here in Revelation? It's the remnant of his body or church. That's the remnant of Jesus, his body or church. In other words, this is the remnant church of prophecy. In the end of time, God does have a church. It's called the remnant of prophecy. And John said that the dragon is angry with the woman and goes after the woman. So which church is God's prophetic end time remnant? That means those faithful, those who come out of Babylon. What is this church in prophet, in the prophecies of the Bible? We can find it out very clearly in Revelation, and I'm glad for that. God helps us to see very clearly what the answer to that question is. There are 34,000 church denominations. Does that mean we should go to each one and try to suss this out? Listen, my friend, you'll be there a long time. You won't get through 34,000. So God makes it very easy for all of us to find out, okay, how do I know? In Revelation, God gives us six clear identifying marks so that we can know. Sorry, five. Revelation's five simple characteristics so that we can see, okay, this is the remnant church of Bible prophecy that is talked about. Notice 
First of all, number one, they keep the commandments of God. Notice the way the Bible presents this. When we begin this battle, John says these words, or hears these words. The dragon went to make war with the remnant of her seed, and then he defines them, who keep the commandments of God. Then comes this great conflict that we've seen where we have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet want everybody to worship ultimately Satan. But then God comes with three angels' messages to seek the world to worship God. As the creator And then when it comes to an end Like two ends of a Two bookends on a bookshelf There is another statement that says God's people keep his commandments Now one of those commandments Is the Sabbath And so it's very easy For us to see Okay, which church is the remnant church of God The first question you ask Is does that church keep the seventh day Sabbath As the Bible says If it does not, yes, there are God's children there. No question, because God says so. But that is not the church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy that John is talking about. Because it must keep the commandments of God, one of which is the Sabbath. Now, there are 500 different churches that keep the Seventh-day Sabbath today. You may not have realized that. There are Pentecostals, there are Anglicans, there are multitudes of people that keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. So now we have to... Find out, okay, what are the other identifying characteristics? Immediately, we can eliminate nearly 95% of the churches of Christendom just by this one principle. Because you have to ask, do they keep the commandments or do they do away with one and not deal with one of those? We cannot say these are the commandments of God written with his finger and disobey one because the Bible says, he who breaks one commandment breaks all. Now, many people are in ignorance, and God understands that. But when we're seeking for truth, we must ask, what is the issue here? Do they keep all of God's commandments, or do they push some aside? Number two, it has the faith of Jesus. John puts it this way. As he comes to the end of this conflict, notice what he says. Here is the patience of the saints, the endurance. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. He repeats this again, and have the faith of Of Jesus. Now, what is the faith of Jesus? How do we understand that? That means this. These people believe very clearly that if faith in Jesus alone brings them forgiveness of all their sins, they can sleep like a baby. Faith in Jesus alone for the salvation from the wrath to come. Faith in Jesus alone for a new life. Like Jesus said, you're born again. Faith in Jesus for a life of victory over Satan and sin. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. That's what it means, first of all, faith in Jesus. They have trust that Christ can do all of that, and he does all of that in their life. That's a marvelous thing. So they will teach that. But it means more than that. It means they believe in the teachings or the doctrines of Jesus, his belief system. Because that's how the idea of faith is also used. We saw it a moment ago, remember? Now the Spirit expressly speaks, says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. What will they be doing? They will be giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines or the teachings of demons. So it's the idea, what was the, we say, what is your faith? Meaning, what beliefs that Jesus held do you hold? 
Now, these are the beliefs of Jesus. These are the teachings that Jesus held. Number one, of course, Jesus believed in baptism by immersion. He was baptized like that. He believed that death was asleep. He said that of Lazarus. Jesus believed in his visible return. Every eye will see him like the lightning that flashes. It won't be a secret coming. He believed in the seventh-day Sabbath. He kept the seventh-day Sabbath. Jesus believed in healthful living. He healed the broken bodies of humans. He would not take alcohol on the cross. Jesus believed in returning God his tenth. He believed in all these teachings. These people will believe the same things that Jesus believed. They, the people of the remnant, will proclaim the three angels' messages. So here's another point. Does the church we're examining preach these three angels' messages? Because that's what John says. John sees these people, and they are proclaiming these messages. How do we know that? Because in Revelation 10, we saw last evening, God told them. What did he say? He said to them, to me, he's representing them, you must prophesy again. Too many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So what are you going to prophesy again? What would they prophesy? This is what they would prophesy, those final messages. And the first one says exactly what they had discovered. What was it? Here it is. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven to every nation. Every tribe, every tongue, every person saying with a loud voice, the hour of his judgment has come. Now, right here on this point, my friend, you can see, is this the remnant church of Bible prophecy? Right here, you can see that almost all will not believe. People will say the judgment is when Jesus comes, but the Bible teaches the judgment begins before Jesus comes because he brings his rewards with him when he comes. You see, the Bible says the hour of his judgment has come and then follows a second angel who warns the world and then follows a third angel who warns the world, don't take the mark. But the first angel has already said the judgment has come, which means in the Greek tense, it's begun when the angel announces it. So you see, ah, is this church that you're looking at examining to find out, is this the remnant of Bible prophecy? Does it teach this or does it put it off into the future? God is very clear here, my friend. He gives us these principles, these characteristics, so we can discover God's remnant movement must be a global movement. It must go worldwide because the Bible says these words, having the everlasting gospel, To proclaim to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. This is a global prophetic movement of God. That's what the angel said in Revelation 10, and that's what's happening in chapter 14. So it must be a global movement. It must emerge after 1798 as well. How do we know that? Because the Bible says these words that we saw before. Remember, John says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So the woman is there for 1,260 years, as we have seen. Then after 1798, when that period ends and the time of the end begins, what does John see next? It's then in John's prophecy that he shares these words. The dragon was angry with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of the seed and he defines them then. So it must emerge after this time period. And then John says, this movement 
is a prophetic movement of God. My friend, this afternoon and from last night, I hope you can sing, this is not something that human beings are cooking up. God has been bringing truth back to different people of different denominations so that truth can be restored to all his children. And the prophetic clock of God struck the hour and God brought a remnant movement into being on time. God's work, not man's work. Very clear from the prophecy. So five identifying characteristics or features. Number one, they keep God's commandments. Number two, the Bible says of these remnant. It has the faith of Jesus. Number three, John says, it proclaims the three angels' messages. Number four, it is a global movement. And number five, he says, it emerges after 1798. Those are the characteristics that you can do, use yourself to examine for yourself. And you must examine for yourself because God says he has a prophetic remnant. Those who come out are called the remnant of God. Now I came here, I love coming here to Nablus in Israel. This is the famous well that they say where the woman got water from and gave some to Jesus when he asked, give me a drink. You think about the story of Jesus and the woman at the well and what took place at that well. As Jesus talked to this woman, he said these words which sound somewhat arrogant, I'll admit, But they were not arrogant, they were truth. And that's why Jesus uttered them. Jesus never did anything to sort of boast or anything. He just simply said the truth to this lady. Notice what Jesus said to this woman at the well. He said, listen here, dear lady, you worship what you do not know. That's pretty hard for this woman, you can imagine. You don't know what you're worshipping as Samaritans. We, he said, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Now, was Jesus saying the Jews are the only people going to be saved? No, of course he was not saying that at all. He was simply saying these people have the oracles or the words of God that present the way of salvation. Salvation is of the Jews. From them comes the Messiah. They have the temple, which the services point to the Messiah. They're no more special in any sense than anyone else, but God has delivered to them something for the world. Salvation is of the Jews. He was not being arrogant. He was just being truthful. But the hour is coming, he said, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, my friend, this afternoon, what I'm going to say may sound arrogant, but it's not arrogance. It's just sharing with you what I've discovered myself from those five principles. Those are the things that God has. Christ was not arrogant, and I hope you hear me this afternoon that I'm not being arrogant. But we have to do that search. Which church is God's prophetic remnant of revelation? Which is that church? I believe from my study that only one church fits those criteria, and that is the Seventh-day Adventist church. It is the church that God has identified through prophecy as the remnant church of Bible prophecy. You see, it does keep God's commandments, including the Sabbath, of course. That's a key key mark of the Seventh-day Adventist church. The Seventh-day Adventist church, of course, it does 
follow the teachings of Jesus. It believes that we are forgiven by faith alone, that salvation is by faith alone, that we have a new life through Jesus alone, of victory over sin and Satan. It believes in the teachings of Jesus that he taught and practiced himself. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus and the teachings that he taught. It does proclaim the three angels' messages. You've been hearing them here for the last five weeks almost. These come from the Bible, as you can appreciate. It's a truly global church. There are, in fact, only two global churches today in the world. One of them is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and one of them is the Church of Rome. Truly global. You could visit the... United States uh, Bible Society, the American Bible Society a few years ago, and they had a huge, they had a picture on the wall and a, sort of like a graph indicating which churches were in which countries. These were Protestant churches that are in their building, and it had 88 churches, 88 countries for one church, the highest, second highest. The next one was almost 200, over 200, I think it was, countries in the world, and that was the Seventh-day Adventist church. Why? Not because of Seventh-day Adventists, but because God in his word said what? You must go to every nation, every tongue, every person. This is a message for the whole planet, not just for the Americans, not just for the Aussies, not just for the Kiwis. It's a global message, and it must go global. So these are the two groups that go completely global as denominations today. Only two churches, Church of Rome and the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. It emerged after 1798. As you study the history, it was officially founded in 1863. Those people from different denominations who came together asking those questions from the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, what went wrong and so on. The remnant, only two groups, my friend, inside is the remnant out, sorry, inside Babylon, lost. Those outside Babylon are called the remnant. Those who leave are the remnant of God in the end of time. My friend today, what does the remnant exist for? It exists for this one great purpose, to prepare men and women for the greatest event that is soon to take place. Are Seventh-day Adventists more loved than by God than others? Of course not, not at all. They're no more special in, this, in that sense than anybody else. God loves all his children, people in all denominations, all religions, non-Christian and Christian. God loves everybody and has a deep regard for everybody and wants everybody to be saved. But he uses the remnant to try to bring people back to the teachings of God to be prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said these words, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep, he said. Other sheep I have which are not of, he said, this sheepfold. He said, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock. And there will be one shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ, that is is what he is seeking to do today. Bring sheep from everywhere to him, the great shepherd of all his sheep in the one great fold. My friend, this afternoon, there are some here that are, this afternoon who are Seventh-day Adventists by name. Let me tell you this afternoon as we close, you are not the remnant. 
unless Jesus is everything to you. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. If you're just in name only, you're not the remnant. You're not the faithful of God in the end of time. You need to understand that. The faithful or the remnant are those who love God, love Jesus Christ, and follow Christ wherever he leads. And so I want to plead with my friends in the Seventh-day Adventist church, make sure you're the remnant and not just a Seventh-day Adventist by name, because that means nothing in the eyes of God. My friends in other churches today, you love God. I know you do. But God has said in his word, come out, my people. We cannot stay in those other denominations because God says, come out. He says, my sheep, hear my voice and follow me. To stay in Babylon is to partake of her sins. And I know you love God and you want to follow God. Then I plead with you this afternoon to do what God says to you, just as I plead with my friends in the Seventh-day Adventist Church to really be God's remnant people, to really love God and not just play games with God, as sometimes so sadly happens. My friend, this afternoon, God wants us to make a decision. I want to bow in prayer. Just to bow in prayer. Shall we bow? Loving God and Father in heaven, these things are not easy to say for me, but I say them because you said in your word they must be said. It was your idea. Come out, my people. Father, you know, just, just like in Israel, many people called themselves the people of God, but they were no more the people of God than a pagan because they didn't love you from the inside out. There are two groups here today, those who are not part of the Seventh-day Adventist faith and those who are. But some who claim to be Seventh-day Adventists are not the remnant and some who are not Seventh-day Adventists are actually the remnant because they are faithful to what they know. They are faithful to God. But today you want us all to make a decision for Christ that we will be his true followers. We will come out if we need to come out and we will be faithful if we've been unfaithful. Lord, today as we're sitting here, help us to take a stand for Christ. If you want to say to the Lord today, whether you're inside the church or you're outside of this fold at the moment, whether you belong to another church, but you see what God is saying and you need to come out and become part of his remnant, I want you to take a stand for Christ today and say, Lord, I want to be your true remnant follower. Just make a stand right now where you are. Just raise, stand to your feet. If you want to say, Lord, I want to be a true remnant follower of Jesus which means I love Christ from the inside and I want to follow Christ. You just stand to your feet. Don't worry about what others are doing, my friend. This is between you and God. You have to answer to God, not to people. So make a stand if God is speaking to you to say, Lord, I will be a true follower of Jesus. I will truly be one of your remnant people. You make that stand today for God. Father, you see us as we're standing to our feet. We want to truly be your instruments to help the world prepare for the greatest event of the ages, the return of Jesus. Be with us now. Keep us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. 
Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.